Heavenly Father, we come to you with an expectant heart, and um, we offer this time to you as uh, a sacrifice of praise and a desire to know you, and we pray that um, we will learn a great deal. Uh, You've said that uh, we can find you in the scriptures, and so we pray that we would learn about you, we would um, have a great vision of who you are. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so... Uh, part four, last part of Judges. Um, we're gonna go, we're gonna race through, uh, Judges chapter three through twenty-one <laughs> in a single week. Um, and what is the basic message of Judges? We talked about this before. Uh, it's in your, uh, it's in your handout. It's the repeated failures of Israel to love God and then the inadequacy of all the Judges to truly rescue Israel. And the key to understanding the book of Judges is to see that it's a series of these cycles that keep repeating over and over um, the cyclical pattern of redemption. And this is how the pattern goes. It's a basic five-fold pattern, which is that first, the people rebel against God, and then God allows his people to suffer from their sins, And then the people realize, they come to their senses, and then they cry out to God for deliverance. Uh, God hears the people's cries, and so he sends a judge, um, really a deliverer. Uh, The word is correctly translated. It has to do with his uh, his or her ability to kind of um, judge cases, adjudicate, but uh, it's a kind of multitasking role. It's uh, uh, in in the, in the stories. It's really a deliverer, a rescuer, um, a savior type. And then finally, number five, because of the judge's reign, because of the judge's leadership and rescue, there is a pe- a, a period of peace and rest. Okay, and so. The first judge, you see this pattern extremely clearly. The first judge being Othniel. And uh, this is Judges chapter 3, verses 7 to 12. And let me just go through it with you. And I broke it down. Um, I, I, there's no verses that are skipping. So you, we could read it just as a intact whole. But I want to break it up into these pieces to show you this fivefold pattern. Um, you can see it very clearly. So number one, stage one, Israel rebels against God. Verse uh, 7, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth, right? These pagan idols. Stage 2, God allows his people then to suffer from suffer from their sins. And this is not God uh, being vindictive or punitive. He's uh, giving the people over to what they truly want so that they can wake up and realize that they're lost, that they're away from him. Therefore, verse 8, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cush Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, and the people of Israel served Cush Rishathaim for eight years. Okay? So, stage three, Israel, the people realize um, that they have forsaken God, they realize they're miserable without him, and so they cry out for deliverance, um, so this is verse 9, the first part of verse 9. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, right, this is a cry of repentance, stage 4, then God hears their cries and sends a deliverer. Second half of verse 9, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. So this, is, this would be, I guess, Caleb's nephew. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel, he went out to he went out to war, and the Lord gave Cush Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cush Rishathaim. And then, of course, stage five, there is a period of peace and rest. So the land had rest for forty years, right? So there is this uh, uh, a period of of tranquility, of harmony, and obedience to God, right? Because under the leadership of now Achniel. They're obeying the Lord. They're seeking the Lord. And those are the five stages. But if you read the very next verse, the story doesn't end because there's a stage six. 
verse ele- the second half of verse 11. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died, and the people of Israel, listen, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So, if you'll notice, there's a stage six. And stage six is, repeat stages one through five. Right? And you see this happen all the, over and over again all through the book of Judges. It's like this nightmarish broken record. And it never ends. It just keeps going again and again. And the people rebel. God sends a judge. Um, there's a period of time of peace, but then the judge dies, and then the people rebel yet again. And so, if you read the book of Judges, the proper sense that you should have is this feeling of despair, right? Um, of kind of hopelessness. Because it never improves, or it never um, gets fixed. It just goes on and on and on. But, um, this is the gospel. And it's kind of an unusual presentation of the gospel, perhaps, than what we're used to, because this is the gospel in negative relief. Um, And so we see the gospel in the negative space, in the absence of something, right? So it's kind of like this, right? You, You see all the judges, right? So you see that each judge ultimately fails, because the judge fails to deliver his people into a lasting, into a permanent um, peace and obedience to God every time the judge ultimately fails. And we're going we're gonna to get to the failures of the judge himself, um, themselves. But, you know, you see that it's not, uh, it's not Samson, it's not Gideon, it's not David, it's not Sam, um, Solomon, it's not all these different kings, all these different leaders that arise And you're supposed to see, well, if it's not all these things, then what is it? And in the middle then, in the absence of all these other leaders, you see that there's this desperate need for a true leader, a true judge, a final savior who would truly lead his people. And that's the message of judges, right? It's not, it's not all these things, it's this. And so judges is ultimately about this. It's about Jesus Christ. But Jesus Christ is never spoken of, nor is there like, oh, there will come a Savior, right? You never read in Judges, oh, but wait, (laughs) there's a Savior coming, son of David. You know, obviously there is no David, but you know, there's a Messiah. You never hear about the Messiah, about Jesus, but that's because Judges is talking about Jesus by talking about everybody who is failing Right, and so it's sort of like instead of you know, I suppose you could like there's there's two ways to draw a portrait, right? You can draw this is going to be my terrible attempt to draw a portrait, but let, let's say this is the pro, profile, right? All right, it looks like those stones right on Easter Island, but um, so that so that's the I should practice this before I come, but so you could draw the portrait like this, right? Um. Or, right, or you could draw the portrait by shading around it. I don't know if that makes sense, right? And you can see it in the absence, in the relief. Does that make sense? That's the book of Judges, okay? Um, So the book of Judges shows us the futility of all moral reform because... Each time a judge tries to institute um, religious reforms and moral instructions, but each time it fails, um, it shows us the inadequacy of all merely human judges. And this goes on for 400 years through 12 judges. And you would kind of think, well, this is a little bit of an overkill, right? Maybe one or two is enough. But now you understand the whole story, the drama of the Old Testament, It's this incredibly long 1,500-year epic of this drama that's 
that's drilling home really the, the message or the lesson that we should have learned in Eden, which is that we need a we need a savior, a divine savior. But twelve judges? Twelve. Yeah. Okay. Twelve judges. Um, some of the judges are 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 extremely like a single verse. Um, so really, it's I think six judges, maybe five judges. We'll go through some of them that is really highlighted in um, in detail. And and so okay, so so oh so so I was talking about the length of time. So it's this extremely long drama because we are a thick-headed, stiff-necked people. And it takes us a long time to figure out how desperately we need a savior, right? All right, so uh, that's depressing enough, right? This the cycle that the cycle keeps going on and on and on, but it's actually worse than that. Um, that's going to be the theme of today's class. It's actually worse than that. Um, you'll see, because it would be depressing if the if the pattern kept going over and over and over and over again. But actually, the pattern begins to break down. You'll see. Well, so that's why I put it up here because I'll show you how the pattern breaks down. And r- instead of instead of it being like a cycle, judges is a downward spiral. Okay, so it gets worse and worse and worse. The pattern devolves. All right. So um, going to going to the judges, okay, themselves. So when he said there tw- uh, was asking about the judges. So there are 12 judges, but really um, there are six judges that are really highlighted. The first one is, is Othniel, then Ehud, right? Ehud defeats Eglon that we just read at the end of uh, the, the passage we just read. Um, then there's Deborah, then Gideon, then uh, Jephthah, right? All these judges, like... In the sense that it's worse, not that they are not a good leader. It's just that the people and you know what they do just keep getting stubborn. Both. So both. Yeah. So these are not righteous leaders. Well, let me just start right. So if you read the passage about Othniel, right? We just read it. Nothing bad is said about him. Um, in fact, the first three judges. No character slight is <coughs> spoken against them. So I guess we could say that these are the three good judges, right? Um, particularly Deborah. If you read the, the account of Deborah, um, she's this woman of great righteousness. But then starting with Gideon, it gets worse and worse and worse. Um, the judges themselves are m- extremely morally compromised. Um and that's the point of the story. It starts out, the cycle itself is terrible, but it starts out at least with good judges, but then the cycle breaks down and then the judges become terrible. Right, that's the story. So let's, let's, so we're gonna skip the good judges and we're gonna go right to the begin, right to the first bad judge, which would be Gideon. And when, everyone knows the story of Gideon, right? Um, but the story of Gideon is really split into four chapters. The first two, uh, chapters six through nine. The first two chapters is the story that everyone is familiar with, right? He is uh, hiding, uh, he's threshing wheat in the wine press, which is really to let, let you know how bad situations are. Because when you thresh wheat, you have to throw the wheat up and let the wind carry away the, ch- the chaff, the chaff, right? But he's doing it in a wine press, which is this enclosed stone space. So it's this really it's supposed to be a really pathetic image that he's scared, right? And then God calls him. He fights with the three hundred. He defeats the armies of Midian, and we think, yay! And then, if you're in Sunday school or, or if you're uh, in children's church, this is my memory at least. You move on, right? Next story. Um, but actually, uh, the story goes on for two more chapters. And it becomes a very, very ugly portrait about Gideon. And I think it's interesting that we don't want, or I think it's interesting that whenever we learn about Gideon, we only want to hear about the first half of the story. We don't like the second half. That's why it's never included in, you know, sort of children's Bibles, or you don't see it in Veggie Tales, right? 
Why is that? When in fact the second half of Gideon is actually the point of the story, right? That's that's the point of Judges. So we're going to focus on the second half of the story, right? Uh, the the one that you're probably less familiar with. So what happens is Gideon fights the Midianite army with his 300 soldiers, right? It's this um, ridiculous battle tactic, uh, but they win. And now it's the aftermath of the battle. And what happens is Gideon is chasing the two Midianite kings, I guess these two generals. Uh, what are their names? Uh, Zalma and Zalmunna. Anyway, so these two Midianite kings, right? And then what happens is Ephraim, Ephraim, the uh, one of the tribes of Israel, comes to Gideon and they're angry. And they're saying, why didn't you invite us to this battle? You know, and so they're angry, they're, they're, they're back, there's backbiting. And then Gideon responds by calming them down, by saying, oh, you're honored, you know, uh, you, you know, your contribution is important. And then two more cities, um, and so he's chasing these, uh, the, the Midianite remnant, and then these two cities, he asks them for help. These are the um, Israelite cities of Succoth and Peniel. And they refuse to help him. In fact, they taunt him because they think that, first of all, it's kind of a calculation because Gideon only has 300 soldiers. So they feel like even though Gideon won this amazing battle, it may not go well for him. And and then what happens is Gideon, um, he does defeat the Midianites finally. And then he comes back and he's enraged. He's so mad that what he does is he takes these two cities. The first city is Sukkoth, and the, the the passage says he flails the skins of the elders. So what he does is he takes thorns and briars, and then he whips the elders so that their skin is, you know, it's sort of like scourging. And then for Peniel, um, there's this tower at Peniel. He puts the elders, all these men, into the tower, and then he tears the tower down, killing these uh, the, the citizens there. And so what do we see? For the first time, the cycle is breaking down because the judge is supposed to be a deliverer. He's supposed to rescue his people. But now we see the judge turning on his own people, killing them. We see internal strife. We see fighting and bickering after, after the defeat of the enemy, Right? So rather than there being a period of peace and rest, we have recrimination, we have um, civil strife. And then um, what happens next in the last chapter is, or, or in, in, what happens next in, the, in, the, in that same chapter, chapter 8, Gideon builds an ephod. Does anyone know what an ephod is? This is we're going to do some Bible trivia. Very good for the priest, yes. So it's a priestly garment. Um, it's kind of like this strange vest made out of gold. It's like this that you. It's like a breastplate, and it and it has twelve stones, uh, twelve uh, precious gems. So it, it's an ext- it's like really a lot. It's like shining, brilliant, bright, you know, um, luxurious item. So he builds this. Oh, so what happens is the priest would wear an ephod, right? So this is my belt and stuff. The priest would wear an ephod, and we're not exactly sure how it works, but somehow the ephod was used to to inquire of God, to ask God what His will is. So, and and then if you read um, if you read Leviticus, there are very specific and very um, exacting rules about how the ephod is to be used. It's supposed to be used only in regard to the tabernacle in in the worship of God, um, and the tabernacle at this time was. In uh, in Ephraim, Ephraim, in the in the tribe of Ephraim, but what happens is Gideon builds it on his own without instruction from God, and he puts it in his hometown of Orpha. And what he does is, in his, in essence, he establishes a rival religious center to compete with the tabernacle, right? <laughs> and let's read the passage about what he does. All right, so this is Judges eight. Where are we? Um, Gary, can I have you read that? <clears throat> and Gideon said to them, Let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earnings from the, the earrings. The earrings <laughs> from his spoil. 
and Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in the city in Ophrah, and all Israel warred after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. Okay, so I want you to know that verse 27 is stunning in the book of Judges. And if we had time, we would have gone through these first three cycles so you could really appreciate why things are breaking down with Gideon. Because in verse 27, it says that the people hoard after the ephod, right? Now, here's the thing. The people rebel against God. When does that happen? The beginning of the cycle. Yes, but well, I guess when does it happen after? The judge Yes. This is the first time that the people began to whore after things other than God during the reign of the judge, right? Things are breaking apart. Usually, the people fall into idolatry after the judge dies, because the judge is holding the people together. But this time, not only is it happening during the reign of the judge, the judge is the one who created the idol in the first place. He's the one leading the people into idolatry, right? By building this ephod. That's right. That's the symbol of idol. That's right. And, and, and actually, if you think about it, the ephod... I should complete the drawing here. But the ephod... Um, it's kind of like a understandable idolatry because it's not a statue of Baal, Baal or Ashtoreth, this strange foreign god. It's actually a religious um, vestment, religious um, clothing that is already mandated in scripture. But he twists it and he takes it out of the ta- context of the tabernacle out of the hands of the priests, and he establishes his own rival religious center, but it looks very similar to what, to, well, it looks very similar to the way Israel was supposed to worship, but it's a twist. If we had time, we could spend a lot of time talking about, okay, what does that mean for us, right? But the, 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 the idolatry that, that, that Gideon leads his people in is subtle, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. It's not so obvious. Okay, but that but that word that all Israel hoard after it is extremely strong language, and it's letting you know this is completely evil and wrong. And then, what happens next is that Gideon begins acting like a Canaanite king. So what happens in the story then is Gideon is 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 judge, and the people come to him and they said, "We want you to be our king." Now Gideon says, "No, no, I decline the kingship." And rightly so, because if you read, um, if you read Deuteronomy, if you read the the, the first five books of, of the Bible, um, the rules for kingship is very very clear. It's supposed to come from God, not initiated by the people. Just like what happens with, for example, um, Samuel, right? But what happens is um, Gideon, even though he declines the kingship, he begins to act very much like a Canaanite king. So let's read the next passage. So uh, Winnie, can I have you read verse thirty? Now Gideon had 70 sons. Wait, let's just stop right there. How is that How is that possible? It is possible, because read on. His own offspring, for he had many wives. Mm-hmm. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, Shechem also bore him a son. And mm-hmm. they call his name Abich- Abimelech. Abimelech. Mm-hmm. And Gideon, the son of Josh, Joash, Joash died in an old, 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 good old age and was buried in the tomb of um, Joash. Joash, his father, at Ophrah of mm-hmm. the Abirites. Good, good. Okay. So, what's going on? First of all, Gideon maintains a harem of women. Okay. Um, I thought that's normal. <coughs> no. <laughs> By the way, by the way, this is a I mean, sidebar. I thought, really. No, this I is a, that's normal this is, Okay, this is a sidebar, okay? So sidebar discussion. Um, one of the things that you'll always hear, because I'm, I'm constantly thinking about the, cur- the current dialogue in our culture, is that, oh, the Bible condones polygamy, right? Because you see examples of polygamy. Here's Gideon being polygamous. Polygamy meaning having multiple wives. The Bible's, but what is the Bible's opinion about polygamy? First of all, it is explicitly stated in Genesis 
right? Uh, therefore, a man shall leave his, fa- his, his, his uh, father and mother and, hold, and cling, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one. So you have this image of a man and a woman in union. That's that's what marriage is supposed to be. So you don't see multiple women. But every time you see a description of polygamy in the Bible, it's in the context of brokenness, evil, and rebellion. Always. You never see polygamy, a happy polygamous family. <laughs> it's always dysfunctional. And that is the Bible's way of telling you what it thinks about polygamy. It doesn't have to say polygamy is wrong. It just says, here's a polygamous family. Look at it. <laughs> right? But doesn't it? Isn't there a verse in Proverbs that talks about being having one wife? Or... Um, like you're talking about Proverbs 31? You know, the... the, the... Uh, no, no. I thought there was one or specifically where there was... You may be right. You may be right. Um, but then the New Testament is quite explicit. Yeah. Right? Um, you're supposed to be, uh, the, the qualifications for an elder, for a godly man, is um, you're supposed to be married to only to one woman. Actually, like the real translation, which is you're a, a one-woman man, um, which means that you only have eyes. You, you're only for one woman, right? Um, but anyways, going, so going back to the story, so, so Gideon has a harem, okay? So he's not modeling righteousness and leadership to his people, but he's acting like a typical Near Eastern a Canaanite king. And by the way, polygamy only always went one way, meaning um, it was always a rich, powerful man exploiting women by having multiple wives, right? And then he names his son Abimelech. Now, this is very important. If you know a little bit about Hebrew, Ab means father, Abi means my father, Melech means king. Okay? So what is what what is his name? Gideon says, no, 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 no. Don't, don't, don't crown me as king. Then he maintains a harem and he names his son Abimelech. Okay? My father is king. This is my son. My father is king. Okay? Um, and then what happens is Gideon dies. Now, if, you, if you're familiar with the book of Judges, you know that the story does not end there. And remember I said these are the judges? Well, there's a little bit of an uh, of a of a little bit of an additional story. There's a whole chapter on Abimelech. Okay? So what happens is again uh, so what happens is Gideon dies and then the people go to Abimelech and they say now we want you to be our king. Gideon declined the kingship. Now you be the king. And Abimelech says, sure. Right? And the first thing he does is he kills his 70 brothers. Okay? And then, um, he, 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 his power base is Shechem. And what happens is it's a brief three-year reign, but Shechem and Abimelech have differences. They argue. And so what does Abimelech do? He goes to war and he destroys Shechem. Right? He kills the people of Shechem. But then he himself is killed also in battle. And so it ends in this spasm of blood and violence and remember the pattern the pattern is God sends a judge and the judge is supposed to fight the Canaanites right but now you have Abimelech and you don't see any fighting of Canaanites all he's doing is he's fighting his own people and he kills his own people um, and so it's a picture of absolute darkness and despair. The people are spiritually dead because they don't do this. They don't cry out to God. Right? They go to Abimelech, this degenerate son of Gideon, and they say, be our king. And then they have this, essentially this uh, civil war. And so the people are spiritually dead. They don't cry out. The leader is evil. And that's the story of Gideon. And, you know, like, Gideon is sort of revered Oh, he's a hero. Um, there's something called Gideon's Bibles, right? Um, we don't have Abimelech's Bibles, right? Um, but I want you to realize that Gideon is not a hero in the story. He is a dark, corrupt, and in the end, an evil leader, and he completely fails his people. Um, then the next judge is Jephthah. We're going to kind of skip Jephthah. Um, the most famous story of Jephthah is that before he goes to battle um, 
who does he battle? The, the Ammonites. He makes a vow. He says, God, please give me victory in battle. Forgetting, of course, that um, God has promised to be with him. But, God, but, 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 but Jephthah says, you know what? I'm going to think like a Canaanite, and I have to bargain with you, God. And he says, God, if you give me victory in this battle, I promise, I pledge my word. The first thing that comes out of my house when I return, I will sacrifice to you. Of course, he's talking about a human being, right? So he must have some sort of large household. He's probably thinking a servant's going to come out. He will slaughter that person as payment to God for this victory. What ends up happening? His only daughter comes out, right? And so uh, he says, oh, my dear daughter, I'm sorry I made this rash vow. Um, And so the daughter weeps, and then he kills her. And so what happens? At the end of Jephthah's reign, you have child sacrifice, which sounds like the Canaanite religions, right? In other words, it's getting worse and worse. You have child sacrifice, which is one of the one of the key features of Canaanite religion, which God explicitly and repeatedly condemns. He says, "Do not do this," and the judge does this, right? Then we'll move on. Human sacrifice itself huh? is crazy. Human sacrifice itself is crazy. That's right, because because the, because the feeling is this: the gods are stingy. There is no grace with the gods. You must win the favor of the gods. And so, you know, for example, um, when you had the battle with uh, Elijah and the prophets of Baal, they're cutting themselves, right, with knives because you have to offer the gods your own blood. But what is the ultimate sacrifice? To kill your own child. So that's what they would do. If if, if there was something of enormous weight, like like this battle in which you'll die or you won't die, you sacrifice your child. But then they should know God never asked human sacrifice. It's always a sheep of gold. Like, it's, it's always a... Animal, animal. substitute. It's yeah, always an animal substitute. That's right. He provided it. Yeah. But Jeff... Right, so example. For example, yes. But Jephthah, who is a supposed leader of God's people, he sacrifices his child. Because it's showing you... It's stupid to make a promise that... Yes, it is yeah. stupid to make a promise. But I mean, he caught himself because it happened to be his only daughter. But I'm saying, like, just itself. But he was already willing to make a human sacrifice. He should have said, I will sacrifice the first thing if it's not my daughter, I guess. <laughs> but anyways, moving on. Last judge. Okay, last judge. Samson. Now, Samson is the last and by far the worst judge. Um, he's completely morally compromised. So let's read Judges 13. Where are we? Elizabeth, can I have you read that for us? And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah, Samson. Yeah, so I I kind of like um, uh, abbreviated the passage a little bit. But first what happens is, so a new cycle is beginning, right? The people rebel against God and God sends a judge, this time Samson. But what's missing in this account? Did they cry out? Yeah. There's no crying. There's no <laughs> repentance. The cycle has completely broken. And which means that the people are spiritually dead. And if you read the account of Samson, if you read through it, you'll notice a conspicuous absence of conflict. Like, with, for example, with Gideon. Gideon has to thresh wheat inside the wine press because he's afraid, because they're raiding. But you don't see any conflict in the story about Samson because you know Israel is under the oppression of the Philistines because you know what it is? It's assimilation. Uh, you see free intermingling. You see free association. And in fact, uh, every time Samson fights, he fights alone. Now, he's capable of fighting alone, but there's something else behind that, which is nobody will fight with him. He always has to do it alone. In fact, the first time he goes to battle with the Philistines, his own people surround him and say, we've got to take you to the Philistines because they're our overlords. You know, we love them. We don't love you, right? Um, and then, so, so here you have the total absence of crying out repentance. You have complete assimilation, peaceful occupation with paganism. And then uh, Judges 14, can I have Eric read that? Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. Yes. So, what happens next is that the judge, 
of God's people marries a pagan woman. And if you were here last week, you know that this is repeatedly, repeatedly said, do not marry with the Canaanites. Do not uh, make covenants with them. Do not intermingle with them because they will corrupt you. They will teach you to fall away from the Lord. So now we have a judge and he doesn't want to fight the Canaanites. He wants to marry the Canaanites, right? So we have a judge. We have a people who don't care and we have a judge who just wants to lie in bed with the enemy, right? But then the people are not suffering, it sounds like, not even. Yeah, that's the worst, that's, that's the worst thing then. Right? Because they're so comfortable with their idolatry and their assimilation of paganism, they don't even see that there's anything wrong. That's the last and worst stage of, of, um, falling away from God. You're not even suffering anymore. You're, they're still second-class citizens. They are still second-class citizens, but they're so deep in, they don't care. Or they're, they're okay with it, yeah. Um, and then in the end, why does Samson fight? If you're familiar with the story, he only fights out of his own sin and peeve. So what happens is, he marries this Canaanite woman, and then he has this riddle, this wager with his king, uh, with his Philistine guests about uh, a lion that he kills, and then the the he, you know he wagers a lot of money, and then the Philistines really want to know the the riddle, so they pressure his wife. She tells uh, she gets the uh, the riddle story, and then Samson is so enraged, he's so angry about this, and what happens is there's a sequence of events, but eventually the Philistines kill his wife, and he's so enraged that he then. Um, goes and he kills a thousand Philistines. It's the story where he gets the jawbone, right? He fights the Canaanites, but not out of obedience to God, not out of righteousness, not to deliver his people, but because of his own personal vengeance and anger. And then he go, he finds another Philistine woman named Delilah. And then finally he's captured, and then... Um, and then he's uh, he's uh, he's he's put in the temple of the Philistines, right? And he's he's in chains. And then at that final last moment, he prays, "God, give me strength one last time." And then he kills, right, in the leadership of the Philistines, the, the the strength of the Philistines. And that's how he delivers God's people. He delivers them not in a glorious or not in an obedient, righteous way. He delivers them out of his disobedience, out of his defeat, right? And that's the story of Samson. Now, it goes on. Uh, so this ends with, with Judges 16. But there's chapter 21, 17 through 21. And chapter 17 through 21, these five chapters, is truly the darkest, um, most vile, most evil chapters in all of the Bible. Uh, if you've ever done, uh, I, you know, I when I was a kid, I do remember very vividly going through Judges because it's so fun, it's so interesting. Uh, one of Judah's uh, favorite things is he like goes. To, we we have like this comic book version of the Bible, so he goes. He likes these muscle bound people, so he's excited about Samson, right? But I'll note, I notice in my children's comic book version of the Bible, it doesn't tell the rest of the story after Samson, right? In fact, I've never heard a sermon on this. Uh, I've never heard a Sunday school on this. So you guys are going to be so lucky because we're going to do it, okay? <laughs> so let's, so we're going to skip chapters 17 through 18. That's a, that's a really dark tale about, uh, this man named Michael who sets up idolatry and then the, the Danites follow him. But anyways, we're going to go skip to 19, which is even worse. Alright? So where are we? Uh, Kat, can you read 19? Um, in those days when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. Yeah, so it's a story of this Levite, basically a priest. First of all, he has a concubine, so that's already bad news, okay? And his he and his concubine get into some fight, some sort of lover spat. So the concubine leaves him, runs away, and so he goes and he looks for his concubine, and he persuades her, he woos her back from her father's house, and so she's coming back home with him. Uh, they live in Ephraim, which is, um, like, if this is Israel, um, he has to go down to 
uh, the tribe of Benjamin, and he has to bring her back home. But what happens is, midway there, they stop at this town of Gibeah. Okay? And then I want to read to you, and, and Gibeah is in the tribe of Benjamin. Okay? And I want us to read what happens in, in Gibeah. So, uh, David, can you read 1922? <clears throat> As they were making their hearts merry, behold. Oh, wait, wait. So what happens is, uh, I'm sorry, the, the Levite, his concubine, um, they are welcomed. So they're basically sort of, what you do is you, if you want hospitality, you go to the well, you sort of wait for somebody to come, because this is a culture of hospitality. So this man says, oh, you know, why don't you come to my house, rest for the night. And so they're all staying at his home, they're eating good food, they're drinking good wine, they're enjoying themselves. Start again, verse 22. As they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house, that we may know him. Yeah, so, this man, who is the man? They're basically, they're, that Levite. Bring him out, so that we may know him. This, of course, is a euphemism for, we want to have sex with him, right? Of course, not voluntarily or willingly. So this would be rape. This would be assault, right? This is why you have many men, right? So keep going. Uh, and I'm, by the way, it gets worse. So I'm sorry if, if uh, the material is very dark, but this is the Bible, okay? And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. Yeah, so he's trying to negotiate with this gang, right? This, this nighttime gang that wants to rape his guest. He's trying to appease them and reason with them. How does he reason with them? Keep going. Behold, here, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. So his negotiating tactic is he says, don't rape my guest. Because that, that, that would be... Because basically, in a culture of hospitality, if somebody kills or harms or assaults your guest, that's, that's, that's a ding on you. So he says, but women, they're of lesser worth. So let me throw out my daughter... And let me throw out his concubine, and you can assault them. Keep going. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. Yeah, it's a little bit like softened language. He made her go out. Basically, he took his concubine, and he shoved her out. And he said, you go face that crowd, that, 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 uh, the, the, what do you call it, the, the thugs out there. Keep going. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. Okay. Who's this man? The Levite. So the Levite throws his concubine out, mm-hmm. saves himself. But there's... The, but when, who was telling the gang that I have a daughter? Oh, that's the master of the house. That's the one who showed us. Okay, but this is... We don't know his name. Person. Okay, that, that's the separate. Okay. That's right. So he throws the concubine out. They sexually assault her abuser all night through the morning, until the morning. And what does this story remind you of, by the way? It should really ring bells. It should sound very familiar. Yes. Genesis 19, this is virtually the same story as what happened in Sodom with Lot and his daughters. Right? And what is that telling us? By the way, Sodom is always like the worst of the worst. It's like the most evil city. It is always an example of human depravity at rock bottom. What is the what is the Bible saying? Gibeah, which is a city in Israel, a a city, an Israelite city is like Sodom. That's what this is saying. That's how bad The situation has gone. It has gone so down. I said it's a spiral. It has gone so down and so bad. It's like the same thing as Sodom. But this Levite went to chase after his concubine. concubine. So she must value her. Well, not too much. Right. But then when these people come, Mm -hmm. he sacrifices. That's what you said. Yeah, that's right. Okay. So what happens is it's like Sodom. And then... He comes out in the morning, he kind of kicks her and he says, come on, let's get up and let's go home, but she's dead. Okay? So, because of this 
because of this assault, she's dead. And then what happens is he takes her home, he puts her on his donkey, and then when he gets home, he gets out a knife and he carves her up into 12 pieces. And then he takes those 12 body pieces and he sends them out to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he says, look what happened to me. And then all the tribes of Israel assemble and they're enraged. And then what they do is they go to the tribe of Benjamin and they say, we want to destroy this town of Gibeah that did this. And the Benjamites say no. So what happens is there's war. And the Benjamites battle with the, the other 11 tribes. And it's a long, drawn-out battle. And if you read the account, uh, maybe like 100,000 people die. Tens, and th- tens of thousands of people die each day. And then finally, they defeat the Benjamites. They annihilate them. They completely wipe them off the face of the earth. Which reminds you of what? It reminds you of the, 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 the initial opening command to the people of God in Deuteronomy, right? Um, destroy the Canaanites completely. These pagan peoples cleanse the land from idolatry. Now, at the very end of Judges, what is happening? They're doing that, but not to the Canaanites. They're doing that to each other. They're wiping out virtually an entire tribe, except 600 men who survive. And 600 men uh, hole up in this, what's called the Rock of Rimna. I'm sorry, Rimon. It's a four-month siege. And then they're trying to kill these last 600 people. right? They've killed, by the way, men, women, children, everybody. Just 600 left. And then at one point, Israel feels remorse. And they say, okay, we can't wipe out an entire tribe. And so they say, okay, what are we going to do? Because now it's 600 men, and, we've, and they all made a vow. No one will give their daughters in marriage to the Benjamites. Because they want to annihilate. They want to exterminate the Benjamites. So what they decided to do is they said, okay, how are we going to perpetuate these 600 people? 600 men. There's no women, by the way. So what they do is they go to this other city called uh, Jabesh Gilead, which had abstained from the Civil War. So it's another Israelite city. They, they decided to take a pass. They're going to be neutral in the Civil War. They go to that Israelite town. They kill every single human being in that town. Men, women, children. Everyone except all uh, virgin women of marriageable age. Right? So they're killing everybody except this small class of people who, can, who they can marry. And there are 400 of them. And they give these 400 women from Jabesh Gilead in marriage to the, the, the surviving Benjamites. And then what does that leave? 200 more, right? So they said, okay, how are we going to get you um, 200 more uh, wives? So then they, then they say, okay, there's this festival at Shiloh, which is another Israelite city. Wait in ambush. When you see the women coming out, kidnap them, grab them, and then they could be your wives. So at the end of the story, you have rape, you have civil war, you have virtual annihilation, and then... That's the end of the story. The tribe that they took the uh, you know, they killed except the, the four hundred. Yeah. They were being left alone. Why? Why? It seems like they convenience. They got to find women for these six hundred remaining Benjamites. So they just basically go to a tribe. I mean, they go to a city that didn't participate, and they punish the city by killing I everybody. They hate the Benjamites. They they regret it afterwards. Right. Okay. So this is what I said, right? You know what judges is? Judges is the gospel in negative relief. Right. It's not. It's it's a complete failure of every judge, and then in the end, the absence of all judges. And what is that crying out for? What is that? What are we supposed to long for? We're supposed to long for the Messiah to come. Um, let me read to you the last verse in the in, in Judges 21. I don't know if I if I have it there for you. Judges 21. In those days there was no king of Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so it's supposed to set you up for the next story. You're supposed to long for this righteous king who is not like Abimelech or Samson or Jephthah or Gideon. This righteous king who will lead his people, who will not turn against his own people and slaughter them, who will not, you know, lead the people in immorality or idolatry, but will, who will take the battle out to the Canaanites, to the pagans, and rescue their people. And the very next book after Judges is Ruth. And it's the story of David's grandmother. Right? And then after Ruth is 1 Samuel. And then you have 
the saga with uh, the prophet Samuel, and then finally David. And that's the story. But even David's not the end of the story, because the, the Bible says there's David's son. David was just a prototype, a flawed prototype. And we're really waiting for David's son. And uh, after the summer, we're going to do a, a sermon series on the life of David. So I'm really excited about that. Any questions? It's a very dark... Rachel, you look very disturbed. Oh, do I? I'm yes. sorry. <laughs> no, that's good. Your face, no, is, this thinking. is how you're supposed to look at it. Like I that. was thinking. Yeah. And it leads me to the thought that I've been kind of struggling with back and forth in my own personal journey, yeah. in my own um, relationship with Christ, is can we as a people truly long for a Savior? Mm without step number two, being allowed to suffer for our sins. And so just in thinking about <clears throat> suffering and its overall purpose, yeah. <clears throat> and as a, as a history of Christians, as a history of people who seek for that, yeah. that Lord, yeah. you know, it, it shows that the, the depravity that we will eventually find ourselves in um, the purpose of it and yeah. anyway so th- that's just my own thought can, no I think that's a really that's a good observation yeah is this just sort of a national saga how much does it relate to our own lives and I think you're right it maps on really well to our own lives and I think often we don't become sensible of the goodness of Christ until mm-hmm. we're in the dark pit ourselves um, and that's because of the wickedness of our own hearts. And we cannot be convinced that Christ is good until God takes away all these other things, these rival good things, mm-hmm. and then we know that Christ is the ultimate good thing um, because our hearts are stubborn. But, you know, when God allows us to suffer for our sins, it's because He loves us. Uh, because He wants to awaken us up. Right. Uh, and then he wants to show us what is ultimately good. So let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, this is a very disturbing, very dark chapter in the Bible, but praise God for the Messiah. Praise God that you did not uh, leave us in the pit of our sin um, as we deserve, fleeing, running away from you, but you sent a Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, help us to be sensible of that. Help us to learn, not just only from our own mistakes and our sins, but let's learn from the sins and mistakes of Israel so that we could be sensible to the goodness of Christ. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.